If you want to make an audiobook, go to thetalkingbook.org. That's thetalkingbook.org. Check out these amazing writers, narrators, indie publishers. Come to Asheville. We record books in a booth. Here's the show. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Talking Book Podcast, the podcast where you go and you listen to new cool books, new readings from authors and their new books. Probably one of your favorite literary podcasts. I would say, you know, maybe not number one, but top five, top 10 maybe uh, on a good week. Let's hope it's up there. I'm sitting here in Asheville, North Carolina. My name's Chris Hartram as usual. That is my name. And uh, I'm having a great time. We just moved into a new house right next to the studio. It's an old house. It was built in 1904, a bit of a fixer-upper, but uh, we just moved here. And now I jog by the Talking Book studio most mornings. It's nice. Uh, I I wave to Dave. Imagine Dave on the balcony. You know, the, the grass is green, the birds are chirping. Dave is on the balcony of the Talking Book studio. And then there's me running by and I wave to Dave. And Dave waves back. You know, can you see it? It's like a movie. It's very pretty here right now. You know, it's May in the mountains. There's mountains everywhere. It's green. There's birds. Um, you know, and I'm about to turn 40 years old, which is insane. I remember when my father turned 40. Like, uh, you know, it didn't seem that long ago. But I was 12 or 13 then. And we had a chocolate cake. And on the cake it said, Lordy, Lordy, look who's 40. And I remember my parents and their friends thought that was very funny. I think it's funny now um, because I'm almost 40. And I hope my cake says, Lordy, Lordy, look who's 40. You know, it might not. Hint, hint to the wife. But, uh, you know, I'm just a dumb kid still. Been here for 40 years. Don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I guess that never goes away. And you learn that. Lordy, Lordy. Anyway, today I have a reading from Alice Kultman. This is the reason you come here for the reading, folks. And here it is. The book of short stories is called Almost Deadly, Almost Good. It's by Alice Kaltman, and it's out now from Word West Press. From a ranch rat who is a perfect angel, there is such a thing, to a mother lusting after her daughter's boyfriend, Kaltman employs whiplash humor and a surety of characters that only a psychotherapist could have. In Kaltman's capable hands, We're all almost deadly, almost good, and fully better for it. What more could we want from our halo devils and little angels than a fruitless escape into other people's meaty, messy, glorious lives? Anyway, Alice is really awesome. Um, This reading is awesome. The book is awesome. Listen to it. Listen to this reading right now and then go get the collection. Monkey see. Well, here I am, clinging to the slippery edge, holding on for dear life as this boat sloshes over six-foot Caribbean swells, heaving up the waves at rocket speed and slapping down whiplash hard. I'm not alone. I am one of eight guests who've signed up at the resort activities desk for a day trip with Carlitos Catamaran Cruises. We're sailing to a cove off a remote island to swim, snorkel, and from a safe distance observe a colony of wild rhesus macaques. The wily little monkeys run all over the volcanic isle, 
a geological aberration, which from the photos I've seen, seems to extrude out of the ocean like a pile of moldy green Play-Doh. I'd have been better off staying back at the resort, taking advantage of the poolside all-you-can-eat-and-drink buffet with my husband Bart, or trying to engage my 15-year-old twins, Leela and Maura, who opted out of this real nature adventure even after I'd attempted to lure them. Cute monkeys, potentially hunky sailor dudes, photo ops galore, eh, but no dice. The last person they want to hang out with is me, the birther. They'd rather enjoy the faux waterfall and swim up resort bar where they can order mocktails to their heart's content, sipping through straws, tossing their hair, and snapping provocative selfies. No stand ever, Carlito, our wiry-framed captain warned. Unless I say so, it can be muy peligroso, dangerous. We get very bad waters, mares agitados, so sit, relax only. Now we are far from shore, and still very far from the monkey-infested island. And these waters are agitado to the max. To distract us, Jorge... Carlito's first mate begins singing a dreamy melody in a deep, sonorous baritone. His voice is astounding. This tattooed giant of a man has serious vocal chops. When he's finished the song, we're all under his spell, and he speaks to us in a soothing voice. The swim around the island is perfecto, and the monkeys are cute, happy little guys, funny. You will love them. Well, I don't know about loving those macaques, says someone sitting on the other side of the catamaran. I look over to see a man grasping a lonely planet guidebook, attempting to read as the catamaran sways back and forth like a massive hammock. He has a mop of blonde hair and excited manner. It says here that on April 10th, 1970, 12 Reese's macaques were illegally relocated by misguided animal rights advocates to the island after serving their purpose at a mainland research facility studying primate behavior. As of April 2019, it is believed there are now over a thousand Reese's monkeys on the island. There have been attempts to control disease and overpopulation, but it is difficult given the terrain and territorial nature of the macaques. Often visitors can see monkey faces poking out of the thick tropical foliage. Though the wild reeses look harmless, they are actually quite protective and dangerous. It is strictly forbidden and illegal to sit foot on the island. All observation must happen from anchored spots a good distance offshore. Eh, no one responds to the blonde guy's report. Personally, I'd rather go with Jorge's beef and sunny version. Happy little guys. And besides, we have more immediate concerns. Five out of the eight of us have already gotten sick, hurling off the side of the boat in a variety of chunky spumes. Luckily, I have an iron stomach. <laughs> Nonetheless, I am so freaked out about drowning, I clench every part of my body in rigid fear. As the swells continue, the moans increase. It is now confirmed. This day trip is a fucking nightmare. While his passengers look on the verge of dying, Carlito is unfazed. He continues his tutorial 
holding tight to the steering wheel, shouting over the sound of gale-force winds and slapping waves. Once we are there, you have una hora, one hour, to swim, to snorkel, and you are welcome to go up and down off the boat where we will serve you a lunch and beverages. Uh, mentioning lunch and beverages is not a good move politically. Some of the seasick have entered the dry heaving stage. So I turn my attention to the other non-vomiting passengers, a pale, thin woman, 40-ish, and a man I assume is her husband. She has her head on his shoulder, eyes shut, and she doesn't seem to be agitado. She seems to be resting, as if she enjoys this boat ride from, and possibly to, hell. The resting woman has a face like a moon, smooth, unblemished, and ghostly blue. She has stiff, shaggy, unnaturally blonde hair falling across her shoulders. A wig, maybe. My mind goes to every middle-aged woman's projected fear. Under that wig, she's bald from breast cancer treatment. But, really, for all I know, she may just have a yen for bad hair pieces. Whatever the case, she's beautiful, the way wispy wan creatures can be, like a fragile daylily, a briefly living thing designed to take one's breath away. Her husband looks older, more my age, 50-ish, tufts of gray streaked brown hair puffing out from under his ball cap, which has Digby Financial embroidered in orange letters across the brim. I examine the husband. He's a bit paunchy, but the arms are nice, and at least he still has a visible chin. Compared to my Bart, he's a Slim Jim. If Bart was on this boat, he'd be hurling like the rest of them, and I'd have to hold his head in my lap and murmur soothing tones, so I guess I should be grateful for the little things. Mr. Digby Financial is staring out to sea over the top of his angelic wife's head, also looking strangely contented. I want what they're drinking, I say to myself. Then the woman wakes, and the serenity ends. The look in her eyes is volcanic, dangerously alarmed. Her sky-blue pupils are swimming in bloodshot and dart around like pinballs. Her whole body quakes. Because she's so thin, I worry she'll shake so hard that the meager amount of flesh she has will rumble off her bones. She swats at her husband's arms with tiny bone-white hands, crying, We're not done yet! Leave us the fuck alone! Her husband gets hold of her wild hands and covers them with his own much larger ones. It's all right, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right, he murmurs, like a compassionate assassin with a pillow over someone's head. But it works like a charm. She's suddenly a dull, listless puppet slumped at his side. The other fools on the ship are too sick to notice her quick, violent bout of hysteria, or his snuffing it out. I'm grateful that Carlito and Jorge are also oblivious. Glad they're paying close attention to navigating us out of this chaos. The husband looks up at me and smiles broadly. It's an inappropriate smile. Not, not a sleazy, domineering one, but a, hey, how you doing, smile as if he'd already forgotten his wife had just nearly broken in a million pieces and blown away in the hot, howling wind. I'm Jack, he calls out to me. I hesitate, but politeness wins out. Miranda, I say. 
He tips his own head towards the top of his wife's as he continues to hold tight to her hands. This is Beth. Beth is flopped in loose marionette mode. Her chin dropped to her chest, so all I see is the top of her head. For all I know, she's asleep. But Jack is still grinning expectantly at me, so I say, "Mm, Hi, Beth. Beth says nothing. Where are you from, Miranda? Jack asks. New York. I wait until we've gone up and over the next mortifying swell to add, City. And you? We're from Cleveland, but we've spent a good amount of time in your fair city recently. Oh, I say. I don't ask why. Up at Sloan Kettering, he continues anyhow. No, cancer suspicion, unfortunately confirmed. Oh, I say again. It's a world-famous teaching hospital, well-known for being at the cutting edge of all cancer research and treatment. Duh, I think. Everyone knows what kind of cancer hospital Sloan Kettering is. But this man's wife has or had cancer, so I spare him the snark. Even if he's smiling like an idiot and mansplaining about a globally recognized healthcare institution. What can I say instead? I'm sorry. Too bad. Uh, that sucks. What kind of cancer? How'd that work out for you? Or rather, really, how'd that work out for Beth? Uh, yes, Sloan Kettering is quite well known, is what I come up with. Jack and I sit there looking at each other, smiles plastered on our faces, mine as fake as they come. His, who knows? The boat lurches, passengers groan, and Beth curls in on herself until her head is on her knees. It looks like she could keel over completely. I'm worried she'll fall. Uh, uh, Is she okay? I ask. Jack pokes a finger to the side of his head. She's fine, except for this. I'd actually been referring to the here and now, the fact that Beth looked like she was about to crumble completely and slosh on over the boat deck. But Jack thinks I'm referring to the cancer, and he's telling me she's healthy but for the inevitable chemo hair loss. So I nod and say, better that's all she's lost. Jack stops smiling. It feels like a giant glaring searchlight that has been blinding me has shut off leaving me flummoxed, disoriented. He turns away from me, returning his gaze out to sea. Beth, a pile of bones by his side. Well, this is awkward, I think. Uh, This is not lighthearted vacation banter. I'm a stretched mark wife and mother, hoping for a moment of independent bliss, an opportunity to throw my sunbonnet to the seas a la that girl, if just for a few measly hours on a -a once-a-year trip to the tropics. Instead, I get Jack and Beth. A few minutes later, we finally enter a calm channel and the island comes into view. There we go, says Carlito. See how pretty? Oh, it is lovely, at least at a distance. Uh, But for the rocky shoreline, which looks like a good place for shipwrecks and suicides. The rest of the island, though, is a pile of soft rolling hills smushed together, covered in spectacular shades and textures of green. The wind rustles leaves and the mounds come alive. Once molten lava, now a world onto its own. The island shakes its lush, foliated booty.
like it knows we're on our way and it's flirting with us. I think I see the famous monkeys, but but I don't say anything. I don't want to raise expectations. But I swear I see moving specks with tiny limbs scrambling over branches, hints of fur and flesh. As we get closer, I'm certain I see their little heads poking through the leaves, fleshy faces, amber eyes, halos of grayish fur. Everybody, look, monkeys, Jorge bellows. Most of the ill passengers are still in the process of recovering, but a few flaccidly ooh and ah, because, after all, they paid big bucks to see the wild Reese's macaques, furry little creatures born from scientific and financial stupidity. Beck lifts her head. She blinks her spooky eyes open and stares. All of a sudden, she's standing, smiling, pointing, hopping up and down. There! She cries, see? Beth almost looks and sounds like your normal run-of-the-mill excitable tourist in her hibiscus flower print caftan over a modest tankini, but only almost. Her gesticulated excitement has more the effect of an animated scarecrow, her voice so squawky and high-pitched, her body so thin and angular, her jumps so weak, her feet barely leave the boat deck. No stand, senora, Carlita warns. Peligroso, Jorge croons. Dangerous. We're not anchored yet. Jack manages to pull Beck down to her seat, clamping both her arms to her sides, her own personal straitjacket. She sits contentedly enough while Carlito turns on the motor and guides us to our anchoring spot about 50 yards from the rocky shoreline. Everyone rallies no longer green and weak to their knees. Fascinating how once seasickness is gone, it's gone. Jorge opens a giant cooler and pulls out a big tub of pasta salad and a pitcher of strawberry-colored liquid. After the formerly puking have scarfed down the provision, they rip off T-shirts and sarongs, gather flippers and snorkels, and dive off the boat. Jack and Beth remain seated. Beth is still staring out at the island, murmuring to herself, while Jack keeps that plastered grin on his face. I stay in my soggy seat, watching Beth. I worry about her, as if she's somehow mine. See, I had cancer too, but I got off easy. I'm fine now. A tiny stage one blip over ten years ago, so now I'm considered cured. Just southwest of my left nipple, there's a still a mini strip of pink, shiny skin marking the place, as if I'd been branded by a thimble. I got off easy with surgery and radiation. No chemo, no hair loss, just a period of time when my skin looked and felt like a ravaged lizard's. Exhaustion like I'd never known, as if a giant magnet was holding me down, down, down. Months of panic and paralyzing fear. Many nights when the then five-year-old twins would tiptoe into my room, Bart's room too, I guess, to sleep like loyal dogs at the foot of the bed. I'm still constantly checking, still endlessly vigilant. As much as I wish it was otherwise, as much as I sometimes pretend, I've never fully recovered my joie de vivre. Now everything is possibly peligroso, 
this boat ride, this vacation, this life. So uh, I get it. I get baths. I don't need to snorkel or view monkeys with faces like wizened old grandpas. When instead, I can poke at the remaining dribs of pasta salad at the bottom of a Dixie cup and keep an eye on Beth at the same time. She seems calm, perhaps verging on comatose. So Jack finally gets up. I see this as an opportunity. I sit next to her and speak softly. Pretty crazy ride over here, huh? I say. Beth gazes towards me with wounded eyes, sickly, searching. She lifts a skeletal hand and points towards the island. Did you see him? Did I see who? Gideon, of course. She stares at the island again, then turns to me, all brightness and possibility. You saw him, right? For the first time on this journey, I feel a bit queasy. Uh, I'm not sure there's anyone on that island, Beth. She shakes her head. No, 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 no. He's there. He's waiting. She stands, agitated again, and I should probably hold her down like Jack had done. But I don't have the heart. I'm no assassin. She walks over to the edge of the boat and cries towards the island. I'm coming! At least 40 little monkey faces stare out at us from the trees. They bare their teeth, screaming and ferocious. Perhaps they're furious, stuck on that island with diseases they can't cure, overcrowded, underfed imprisoned, really. Or maybe they're happy. Maybe they're just returning Beth's call. Beth! Jack's making his way towards her now, but he's not fast enough. Beth catapults herself off the side of the boat, fully clothed. She spreads her arms as she flies through the air, and for a few seconds she's aloft. The gauzy material of her caftan flutter like wings. Then she hits the water with a thud. She plummets, seems lost to us forever, then pops up, reborn. Her shaggy wig stays firmly in place as Beth starts a very awkward dog paddle towards the island. Fuck my life, Jack mutters under his breath. He slowly disrobes, taking his sweet time, which may seem odd because his wife is possibly about to drown. But I get it. She's worn him down with her sickness, her needs, her cancer-fueled lunacy. I, however, am not worn down, and I have kindness to give. I rip off my own floral caftan recently purchased at the resort boutique and dive off the boat. I'm at Beth's side in an instant. She's bobbing like a human cork, looking towards the green hills speckled with monkey faces, her own head barely above the water. I grab her in a lifeguard hold, one arm across her chest, aware that my arm might be pressing on or very near her own fresh scars. I pause for a moment and ask, is this okay? Beth sighs. I understand, I say. I had it too. Cancer sucks. Beth turns her head up to look at me. We're so close we could kiss. It's then I realize Beth's wig is actually Beth's hair, and that it is unusually thick, now plastered against her skull like a wet cat's. I was at Sloan Kettering's also, I say. Suddenly, Beth's expression brightens. Oh, yes? They're miracle workers. They cured my son Gideon. Hmm. All those naysayers in their white coats telling me he was gone, that the treatment hadn't worked, 
that I had to let go. But I know he was just sleeping. He's fine now. See? She lifts an arm and points towards the island. He's there, playing with his friends. I should go pick him up. It's time for dinner. I rewind to that moment when Jack pointed to his head, not indicating everything was fine except for Beth's hair loss. He was telling me Beth had lost her son and so had lost her mind. She wasn't the one with cancer. It was worse than that. I am a mother with two live, exasperating children. Just yesterday at the airport, I told them both to shut up, to stop driving me crazy, to leave me the fuck alone. I would see my daughter's faces in the trees if they were dead. I would go mad. No question. I look across the cove and up at the monkeys screaming from the treetops. They chatter, they howl, they beckon. I turn back to the boat. Jack is still lingering. Carlito is pacing. Jorge has an inner tube on a line he's ready to toss. The rest of the passengers, ignorant of this tragedy, are swimming on the other side of the boat. We could sink, Beth and I, from the weight of it all. But instead, we float. Once again, I turn towards the island and fix my gaze on one little wrinkled face in the trees. Perhaps the grimace is really a mischievous smile. Gideon's adorable, I say. Looks just like you. Beth relaxes into my hold. We glide, caught in a current. Just for a moment, not for very long. I'll let us be carried by these churlish waters. Two mothers drifting towards a treacherous shore. Okay, my friends, that was Alice Kaltman reading from her new collection, Almost Deadly, Almost Good. It's out now from Word West Press. I'll leave links in the show notes. Go buy it. Alice Kaltman is the author of the story collection Staggerwing, the novels Wave House, The Tantalizing Tales of Grace Minaw, and Dogtown. Her new linked collection, Almost Deadly, Almost Good, came out in November of 2022, and you can go get it right now at Word West Press. If you want to read in the Talking Book Podcast, if you want me introduce your reading on the Talking Book Podcast, or you want to record audiobooks with us in Asheville or remotely, we do it all, hit me up at thetalkingbook.org. We're an audiobook studio. I think we might be like the first indie like audiobook studio, but anyway, that's probably arguable. Email me at Chris, K-R-I-S, Chris with a K, K-R-I-S at talkingbook.pub. Anytime, come see us in Asheville. It's May in the mountains. It's very pretty. Thanks again to Dave for editing this. Keegan Grambois, Holler Boys, Alex Sturgis for the music. And of course, Alice Kaltman for the reading. Go get Almost Deadly, Almost Good immediately. You're all beautiful people. The summer is upon us. Next time you hear from me, I'll be 40. Lordy, lordy. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy chasing sister squares I was lit 
Door was passing over, and the window 